0: All right, father sibling. So, um, one of the one of the main things that I was curious about is what you know. There's a there's the conversion where you know a lot of people. I feel like there's one of the more common conversion stories is where a lot of people grow up like a cradle Catholic and then you know one day they truly decide that they want to be Catholic. They actually commit themselves to being the best possible Catholic they can be. Um, was that is that similar to how your conversion story went? Or, or how exactly did you decide that Catholicism was
1: the religion that you wanted to stick with? Well, that's a great question. I, I guess, um, I mean, I grew up very, very Catholic. I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, in a time when things were kind of insane. So I grew up with a solid foundation You know, my dad and mom taught us out of the Baltimore Catechism and went to Catholic school. Whereas a lot of my peers, I'm 47 now, a lot of my peers did not get that. And so, when that came to the point for me to sort of make my own decision, I had a pretty good foundation on what the faith was. Now, getting into high school and fast-forwarding, I still was involved in youth ministry, I still knew my Bible, I knew my Catholic teaching. I got caught up in, in reading different authors. I was a debater, so like philosophy, uh, John Stuart Mill, utilitarianism, um, natural law theorists. Of course, in high school, I thought I knew everything, which, which of course is the case. Yeah. And then, like, sort of Ayn Rand and, and sort of objectivism and just different sort of economic theories. Where I came up with a pretty flawed view of what I think the world should be. And I did my best to try to like meld it with Catholicism, which of course, Maybe a jerk for the most part, but um, I know it all obnoxious, but then again I was like 17, 18 I thought I knew anything anyhow. Um, so I tried my best to like reconcile worldly wisdom, which was pretty twisted, with um, Catholicism. And it wasn't until uh, as I got older I began to continue wrestling with those questions and other ones, particularly like science and the questions of atheism and how the world exists and all this kind of stuff that really, if you look at it, really shouldn't cause problems with faith, but because I guess I was trying to be a cool English major in college, impress <laughs> the ladies and be, you know, contrarian, it was a difficulty. Um, but when I had my deeper conversion, which was not an intellectual conversion, which was one that just like I went from someone who was like, okay, Catholic and grew up Catholic and loved being Catholic, but wasn't super practicing it and kind of made my own idea and wasn't just like a lax Catholic. I was practicing the way that I thought you should be practiced. I had a heart conversion, I guess, a deeper conversion that transcended reason. But then I was forced to make up my, my mind. Now there's a granted, there's a grace that came. I think, like, oh, I believe. I just kind of believe. This is what the church teaches. This is what I want to believe. But I really went through a process of doing research. Um, my dad, when I found out, my dad was actually not baptized Catholic. He was a, he was a Baptist. He converted in high school, and I came to, actually went to the seminary for a while. Um, and this is back in the 50s, and Broguers, Louisiana, when everybody was Catholic. Um, and he told me that his, one of his decisive, like, turning points, was when he realized that, and I don't mean to insult this to anybody who's listening, that Protestantism just didn't make sense, it wasn't logically coherent, um, but Catholicism was, at least when it comes to tradition. So I kind of had that same thinking. I just started saying, all right, what are the questions I have about the faith? And I started doing my own research, you know, reading scripture, reading. At that time, like Dr. Peter Kreeft and Scott Hahn were becoming very popular, uh, listening to different cassette tapes, There's no <laughs> podcast back then, uh, and talking to priests and reading scripture commentary where I was able to like, say, okay, well, I believe this, but this is kind of why I believe it, or if I didn't know why I believed it, I knew where I could find it. And then that the time in the seminary, just doing more and more of that, of being able to realize what we call Fides quorum's intellect and faith, seeking understanding. I knew they still took faith, but that's the intellectual sort of, I don't want to say conversion came, but where I took what I, I knew was truth and came to a deeper understanding of it, and thus was able to cast away a lot of the craziness I believed, and try to remain in the balance of the faith, never just being like bl- blind faith, always still questioning and trying to understand things, but uh, seeing that faith is reasonable. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Probably no, a lot longer to an answer the Yeah, you, yeah. Right?
0: <laughs> no, all good. One thing you you brought up grace, and uh, one of the questions that I planned on bringing up was. Um, You know, I came across multiple people recently who have explained that, you know, they grew up Catholic or that they've tried, you know, to go to a Catholic mass, but, um, you know, they didn't get much out of the homily. They didn't really understand what the priest was getting through, or maybe the priest wasn't a very talented public speaker, whatever it was. Um, so like for the people who don't completely understand or grasp the concept of grace, how can how can we as Catholics answer that whenever they say oh i tried Catholicism but the you know it wasn't very entertaining i couldn't sit in the mass i couldn't sit in that mass for so long mm-hmm. you know when you can go to a protestant church and there's you know a lot of music and a very like fired up speaker most of the time um kind of how do we answer that how do we go how do you go about um dealing with with someone who doesn't really understand the concept of the sacraments and things like that, but you want to keep them coming to mass. Yeah, no,
1: I think it's a great question, actually probably several different things I could respond to or several different questions there. One is, yes, a lot of the times the priest holiday is boring and they're not public speakers. Um, and I guess in one part, like, hey, I think we need to do a better job at training our priests to be able to be better speakers, or at least to make sense I and mean, part of it. I did public speaking for so long. I just, this is a structure, you fit your, your helmet in the structure and it's gonna be fairly decent, even if you're not the great public speaker. But then the other part is like, hey, you know, the mass is something more than just the talk, just the music. Because we as Catholics believe Jesus shows up. It doesn't mean that, well, Jesus shows up, the rest can be garbage. No, we wanna have a good balance. But I think the issue comes in a lack of understanding of the nature of a ritual and what ritualistic worship is. And that's a whole different topic. We live in a culture where formality and structure is not something we really want, or else we say we don't. Um, but traditionally if you're going to approach God who is sacred and he's holy, you there's always gonna be rituals and rules and regulation. You just don't walk up to the Holy of Holies. There are rules that govern it. And so because we believe that in the Catholic Mass we approach and have a chance to receive Jesus, who is the Holy of Holies, there are going to be rules and rituals there, that just from a perspective of just study of basic religions. Every religious society has that. Um, we take a lot of our rituals from the Jewish celebration and transfer it into Catholicism. And the early church did that and saw it, so a lot of our mass, are adaptations of the early or just the traditional Jewish liturgies that would have been in the temple or potentially even in the synagogue. So if you don't understand ritual and you don't understand sacred, well then yeah, we're just gonna go have a good time and just make ourselves feel better. But I I do believe we as a culture do understand somewhat of the sacred and ritual because the word fanatic, which we say this word is religious fanatic, comes from the Latin word fanum, fanum meant temple. And so the fanatic is the person who hung around the temple where there was worship. Well, fanatic is bad if you're a religious fanatic, but if you're a big fan of the New Orleans Saints, that's great. It's the same word, same exact word. So where's the modern day, I think it's revelatory, where's the modern day temple? The modern day temple is sports. We have plenty of rituals. You get dressed up a certain way, you stand up, you sit down, you watch this action that you're not participating in, which is pretty boring for three and a half hours, if you're going to be honest, but yet we get into it. So we do. You, you can escape ritual and Mass, you're going to find ritual in another place. So for me, yeah, okay, it's the ritual that's the big, deep understanding. But when you talk about this idea of grace and the sacraments, one of the issues is we don't understand what grace is, Period. And sacra- the sacraments that Jesus institutes, which the church has in sort of ritualistic form, we can talk about where that comes from, why those are important, why we believe Christ gave them, but they communicate grace. But <clears throat> what is grace? It's one of those words Catholics we throw around all the time, no one knows what it means. Uh, Pope Benedict talks about the, this is going to be great for your listeners, the reification of grace. To reify something, uh, from the Latin word res, which means thing. It takes like an abstract concept and tries to make it into a thing. Grace is not a thing. Grace ultimately comes from the, 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 the Greek charis, which means gift. So grace is a gift, in a certain sense any sort of gift, but the real grace is the very life of God himself. So we believe as Christians in Christ, in the Eucharist, in the sacraments, God gives us his very self. So if you're a baptized Christian, God, Father, Son, and Spirit comes to dwell on your souls. If you want to get technical, this this uncreated grace, because God wasn't created. That uncreated gift of God himself. Now, theology has developed that you need sacramental grace, the type of created grace for God to be able to live in your soul. If you want to discuss that, we can. I'm getting into a lot of too many theological issues here. But yet, this is what it essentially is, that the Lord desires to give us his grace, his very, very self And he gives us primarily in the sacraments where we encounter the sacred in a very real and intimate way. And as Catholics and as Christians and as humans, there are rules and rituals that come to approaching the sacred and receiving the life of God that mark it out as something separate than what we call the profane, the profanum, that which is outside of the temple. And every culture has understood that except for ours. Is that you just don't walk up to the sacred thing? There are rules and regulations we follow because of the reverence we have for that which is sacred that communicates the life of God.
0: No, I love it whenever you're, you get really fired up and dive into yeah. a bunch of stuff that obviously is uh, very educational. Hopefully, our <laughs> listeners
1: are still fired up and they have Yeah, sure. Right. The podcast. They're like,
0: I'm just listening to this because this is read and, and Father Sibley. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think, I I was just listening to a podcast with uh, Bishop Barron, and, uh, you know, pretty similar to what you were just saying, you know, we de- we naturally desire rituals, we naturally desire that, that type of thing, we naturally desire God, even if that comes in different ways, you know, whether we we uh, portray a, a sports team as our God, or like mm-hmm. going to a game as our ritual, we naturally, you know, want these rituals, we desire this, and we, we naturally want this, it's just a lot of it has turned into other things besides going to a ritualistic mass or um, finding God itself. And, you know, like, you've had a lot of experience, you even said this, that you've had a lot of experience public speaking and um, talking, which is something that a lot of priests haven't had. Is there a specific time, like, you, you've you appeared on EWTN, you've recorded lots of podcasts mm-hmm. and given lots of homilies. Is, do you remember a specific talk or event that you've been extremely nervous for, you know, like going on EWTN or giving a complicated homily or. Something. I'll okay.
1: Okay. I'll tell you the reason I'm comfortable. I did public speaking a lot and I learned how to do it, particularly extemporaneous speaking where you were giving a topic in 30 minutes of your research and you have to give a seven minute speech. So preaching homilies and whatnot, generally I don't get nervous daily homilies. I will tell you for me as a priest, the only time that I potentially will get nervous, and I would think every priest is the same way, is whenever you have to preach or give talks in front of other priests. that's like I mean you do athletics, so <laughs> I'm sure if you had to get up and do like some talk with a bunch of world class trainers. Oh, Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because I know like when I was another priest, oh this guy does what he's doing. Oh he shut <laughs> up. Because <laughs> I know I could get a jerk too. So, uh, the, you're gonna, your peers are always going to be your harshest critics. And so, it's not only like, hey, I've got to speak in front of just priests in a different diocese. I mean, I've given retreats to priests before. And it's usually like, okay, for, like if you do a five-day retreat for priests, the first day, they're going to be like, who is this guy? And what does he know? And then if you're decent, by the end of the time, they're going to be talking to you and asking you questions. Yeah. Your diocesan brothers who know you, you know, whatever. They're just like... This guy, on, not know what he's talking about. So <laughs> speaking of priests, specifically speaking to priests that you know is always going to be the most difficult. Nice. I do, I do it. I don't want to speak yeah. to our, of our diocesan brothers a lot, um, but it's always more of a challenge.
0: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, um, and I can relate to That's that. an easy one and very brief take. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: no, good. Um, I, I actually went to a uh, two-year debate with one of the professors on campus about mm. atheism and Theism and um, one of the th- one of the main things that i've been very curious about is how do we find that happy medium of um, being confident in our religion, being confident in our belief system, but also being open minded and understanding other belief systems you know where where's that medium of being able to stand up for ourselves but also accept the other argument
1: yeah, well, I think that th- this is one of the stories I like to quote the most is actually from um I read it first as versus- some of our listeners may have heard it from um, Pope Benedict in his introduction to Christianity. He, The very beginning section has this chapter on faith, which is the best thing I've ever read on, on just what faith is. It goes a story from the, the Jewish philosopher of the 20th century, Martin Buber, and Buber tells the story, I may get into the details of this from this young man who's like an atheist, and this is in the, you know, the 40s and the 50s, and he's... Really is God, so he goes to his Jewish or former Jewish rabbi and says, Rabbi, and the rabbi's like reading the Torah. I don't believe in God, I don't believe in the Bible, and this is all bunch of garbage. And the, the wise rabbi even takes his glasses off and closes the Torah and says, perhaps, and, says, perhaps, and says, perhaps what you mean, he says, perhaps you're 100% correct. Perhaps, there's no way I can prove it, but perhaps you're wrong because you can't prove it either. And he goes on to make this great explanation that, that, that believers and unbelievers share a, share a shared perhaps. Because mm-hmm. there's a certitude of faith, but you don't have the same scientific certitude. And he says that this is a great way where the, the dialogue is possible. Because you could be a fundamentalist on either side. Trust me, I've met some atheists who are the biggest fundamentalist jerks. And I've met some religious people who are the biggest fundamentalist jerks. Where it's not that we don't have confidence in what we believe and are willing to share it, but that we realize, hey, you know, we're dealing with things that we can have a moral certitude or a certitude of faith, but it's not the scientific certitude. That goes a long way to saying, well, listen, hey, we need to be able to have, be willing to listen to arguments. Um, so I think that's one of the, the big things. If you study debate or you study rhetoric about speaking, I want to hear what your argument is, and that's why I think St. Thomas Aquinas is so important. If you've read his Summa Theologiae, it's all questions, and what he does is he's like, you know, like, is Jesus truly present in the universe, whatever. And then what he does, he looks at all the objections, and then he tries to say like, Jesus is not present because of this, this, and this. And sometimes you may have five, ten objections, and he really. Tr- this is the way they studied in the Middle Ages. They had a question, and they try to look at both sides. They first want to look at what the objections are. And to be fair not to set up a straw man what is this person's real argument and then from there evaluate it and if it's wrong rebut it and give evidence why it's wrong and so basically the sum is nothing but a bunch of arguments against christianity and the rebuttals so be fair to your interlocutor be fair to their argument to really try to understand and not just to shoot down a straw man but the other thing is too to realize that they're people too i mean uh, Whenever we did that debate with the doctors, Corksy, and uh, Rick Swanson, you know, people were like, oh, Father, you're going to tear them to shreds, or y'all are going to debate. I said, no, we're friends. <laughs> we may disagree, but there are a lot of things that we like with each other, and that's why I was so happy for those who would go on YouTube and watch it, or go on the podca- my podcast. He- Swanson says, listen, with all this acrimony, and the fighting, and the universities, and you can't have your opinion and this person should be shut down. We want to show, and this was nothing I told him to do, or Dr. Parks said, we want to show that people of differing opinions, but still value truth and the search for truth and the university atmosphere, can disagree in a very respectful way and that we're still friends. If it would have been prohibited against the university policies, we'd have drank a beer together. Uh, we visited outside of that. I mean, uh, we go see some concerts in town. I see Dr. Swanson there fairly often. Uh, so to show, hey, listen, you can disagree with someone, but you don't need to be a jerk. Yeah. You don't need to be a jerk. Nice. Cool. <laughs> um, I kind of the
0: This had come up in my mind Uh, recently as something that I was kind of like struggling with in prayer. Um, and I thought it would be a great question to ask you for the podcast because I feel like there's, there's probably quite a few people who kind of struggle with the same question. That, that's reading the Old Testament and seeing you know, the book of Exodus and and the book of Job where, you know, God seems imperfect. He seems, you know, in a way like jealous and wrathful. And, um, you know, especially in the book of Job, this is kind of what triggered it for me was reading that first chapter and, you know, God's having a conversation with the the devil and he's like, yeah, have your way with him, you know? Mm -hmm. And so how are we supposed to, to read that and look at that and find the, the positive real message? What, what can we get out of it? That?
1: That's a great question. It would be worth a whole podcast. And it's tricky, tricky, tricky because you have to understand revelation. What revelation means is God revealing himself to man. How God chooses to reveal himself. Um, there are whole courses in the seminary and books you can read on this. So basically we believe that God chose to reveal himself to man. He begins to reveal himself through Abraham um, in this very specific way. When you look at Scripture, you have to understand the Old Testament wasn't written by one author all at the same time. It was written over the period of potentially 700 to 500 years. Maybe over 1,000 years, actually. The Old Testament. Yeah, the Old Testament. Probably more than a 1,000 years or even more. Potentially, a bit less. I mean, scholars d- d- differ. And it began with old tradition, then it was later put down in writing and then redacted and there's a whole process where they we call the, the, the individual letters or the candles put together. But through that, you have God revealing himself to people who began as like a very nomadic, primitive people who were even polytheists. And it's just like when you imagine trying to communicate a truth to a kid Your first grader, even though you know the truths of calculus and the truths of quantum mechanics, you're not going to try to teach the first grader E equals mc squared, or you're not going to try to teach them complicated calculus. You're going to teach them basic, like, you know, as they get younger, Newtonian mechanics, basic mathematics. But once they get older and they're capable of understanding the nuances, you reveal more. And so Israel, God's revelation, was revealing himself very gradually up until they got to Christ, Because of the capacity, they couldn't fully understand it. So you read the Bible, you're going to get different writings at different times, the different understandings, capacities, that they would have had to understand who God was. And and these Semitic people, the people in the area of Mesopotamia and Sumeria, again, very warlike often, you know, tribal. And so their concept of the society of living were often projected onto God. But also that God could have used that to communicate certain truths as he went to hopefully we fully help them understand who he was. Now, this also means that we can understand in the scriptures, the Old Testament, there are a lot of different genres. You have to be able to know what the genre is. Job is a different genre than Genesis, different genre than some of the prophets. So you have to use certain modern tools to understand how to, to, to do the proper criticism, also where some of the different roots and other texts or cultures these ideas came from. Um, but it, it's all the way the Lord uses, takes people where they're at, uses the different tools and literary genres to communicate certain truths so that people could understand it. We now can look back and say, oh, did God really want this or did God really want that? Well, God was speaking to a certain people in the capacity they could understand it, revealing it to them, and maybe potentially put up with some stuff that wasn't correct, but he tolerated it until they were able to understand it. One of the things that I preached about this weekend, and maybe this will answer your question a little bit better because this is a really difficult question to answer, <laughs> and I'm trying not to say anything that sounds heretical, um, I wrote an article about this Organization that studied all these different world religions, like 600 world religions, many of them primitive religions throughout history, and their concept of deity or their deities. And when these cultures evolved to a point where they had a quote unquote big deity, the god who was the one who could keep everyone in line and punish, as opposed to a bunch of little tribal gods that did favors for people and were often causing mischief. And, and this is from a non religious source. The deity is, is yeah, one God? One God, God yeah. Like, yeah the God we're talking about the big God who gotcha. rules a, a movement almost towards monotheism or an all powerful God who is, what we call henotheism, who's the one God who's stronger than the rest. Um, and they said that these cultures usually are pretty advanced. And the theory was that they were advanced because they needed the big deity, who was the punishing God to keep everybody in line. Because if all of a sudden you had to start doing work with people in a culture and training that people you didn't know you didn't trusted, you didn't trust. There had to be trust there, and so you, religion evolved to a certain degree or a concept of deity. This is outside of revelation. Uh, evolved to a point where I need to have a punishing deity to keep everybody in line so we get along with each other. Well, if that's true, and I'm not saying I believe it's true or not, but it's reasonable. God comes and begins working within that. And to say, all right, hey, yes, I'm the punishing deity. I'm the warlike God. You better obey. But something happened different in Jesus. And the final word that God spoke, his very son, comes and says, no, this is God's a loving father. He's not there to punish. The ultimate expression of who God is is mercy and forgiveness. This is a radical shift for a big deity in an evolved culture which, for me, lends some credence to people who maybe are unbelievers that, where did this come from? This is a radical shift to go from the punishing gods and keeping behind to, hey, wait a second. I'm not saying that the Jews had, they understood mercy, they understood the resurrection. There was a gradual process leading up to Jesus. So it wasn't as much of a shift as it would have been if it was like a thousand years ago. He led them to the point where he could say, listen, I'm, I'm a father. I'm not a warlord. I'm not a god of justice primarily. I'm a god of mercy, or my justice is tempered with mercy. So I just gave you ten minutes. Probably way too much information needed. But yeah, no, that's that's good. Yeah, I mean, it makes some... sense.
0: Whenever it's uh, it's a difficult question to answer, but uh, I think uh, what what kind of the main thing that I had gotten out of it was, and you can let me know if I interpret it incorrectly, is that it it's possible that it's reasonable to say that God try to communicate with the people the best way that he possibly could so that they can understand the general message that he's trying to give them. And then they interpret it a certain way. And whenever they write it down, now we look at that and we're like, okay, that's weird that they're saying that we need to go out and kill people. But at the time, that's how God needed to communicate. So that was a bad example. But that's how God needed to communicate.
1: Yeah, or the way that God communicated, whether A, the way they needed to communicate in the capacity for them to understand it, or the way they interpreted God as saying things it's very it's difficult because you have what God's trying to say and the way people are interpreting it and then the way they're putting it down in writing all hundreds of years after yeah um, so I mean that's why I think it's just the, the crucial is that, the law, that God speaks to his people in the capacity for them to understand he doesn't just sit them down and say I need to explain everything to you right now and you better obey he takes you where you're at and gradually reveals to you as an individual and also to Israel as a people According to their capacity to understand, being very, very patient and allowing them to to grow from like childhood to adulthood and their ability
0: to understand and grasp the faith. And it is a, you know, it is a quite a beautiful progression throughout life um, that, you know, God consistently reveals everything. You know, imagine if within your first, you know, three years of consciousness, you know, He reveals everything to you. It's like, we desire mystery. We're, we're striving our whole lives for the mystery that lies behind God. We have no clue, and we're, we're so, you know, people become so passionate about the mystery behind life. Um, and with God just revealing that in one moment, um, what would be the point? What would be the purpose? Yeah,
1: and, and and guess it's goes back to maybe the earlier discussion about worship and liturgy, with worship and liturgy and sacrament. The word sacrament is the lat comes from the Latin root sacramentum, which is a translation of the Greek mysterion, which means mystery. And you know, religion is about mystery. We're not going to be able to fully understand everything. Usually God chooses to reveal himself. And so we, as much as we want to understand, or we're not gonna understand it at all, we're gonna to have to come face to face with mystery and not knowing things and not having certitude and sort of being stuck where I need to make an act of faith. Um, and so that's the real struggle for people today. They want it all explained to them. Mm-hmm. I want to understand everything. I want to read the manual. I want to know all the truth instead of having to sort of sit in the unknowing mm-hmm. and really wrestle with that. I had someone bring that to me to a point a while back that how, you know, she started writing letters. And when you write a letter to somebody, did it get there? When are they get to write back to me? I don't know. And while well, now, there's a mystery there. There's, you just sit with the unknowing. Text messages in our communication, there's no unknowing. All right? When I send the text message, I want a response right now. If Father waits, or if someone wants five minutes to get back in touch with me, but they hate me. They don't get the message. <laughs> We're so, and we want to apply that communication to God. It just doesn't work that way. No, yeah. You just, it's, he, he, he. we gotta, we got we to sit in the mystery sometimes before we can have a glimpse of what the answer might be. Yeah.
0: The way our society has kind of evolved, it's like uh, training us to completely get rid of the virtue of patience, you know, it's like completely like everything's now, everything you know, and, and same thing with my field in fitness, everybody wants this magical answer from the start, but it's like, if you truly want results, if you truly want to be healthy for the rest of your life and not have weight gain for the rest of your life then we need to take a step-by-step process, very strategic, and it's going to take, you know, two months of you not seeing a whole lot of results for the rest of your life to see results, you know? And uh, people, people struggle with that now. Yeah, they want a the pill. They want it done they immediately. It done.
1: I want to be I want to be super healthy and super ripped by taking a pill or something. That just doesn't
0: happen. I want to be enlightened by, you know, one session of prayer. I want to
1: go to Mass one time and have it all. It's, um... And the irony is, the irony of the mystery is, you go deeper and you go further in prayer or spirit, the more you realize you don't understand. But I mean, that's what Socrates and Plato and the, the Greeks understood. Like, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And so you have to realize, hey, we're all kind of morons. Yeah, yeah.
0: I, I forget who it was, if it was St. Ignatius or St. Augustine, that, was, um, that had a vision of, you know, this kid digging. In the sand, Saint, Saint Augustine. Yeah, Saint Augustine, and uh, digging in the sand, and then he would, you know, go get a bucket of water and fill the oh. fill the hole with water. And he asked the kid what he was doing, and the kid said, "Well, um, I'm trying to fill this this hole with the ocean." And he realized that's what he was trying to do, trying to understand God. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, no, it, it's beautiful. Um, I had a, I reached out to a few people, because I wanted this to be a, a podcast where, you know, many people, uh, this would be an opportunity for people to be able to, like, ask a priest something. Yeah. Uh, so I reached out to a few people and asked certain questions. Uh, yeah, I asked them to ask me certain questions so that I could bring them to you. Uh, one of the questions what, that I really liked was, um, whenever you're celebrating Mass, I mean, so many times, how do you keep... I guess, prioritizing what's going on, the sacrifice that's going on? How do you not just go through the motions?
1: That's a great question. Actually, an uh, uh, interesting answer for that. I would say, I'm ADD, and just like anybody else, my mind wanders. I mean, so yeah, people, priests' mind wander during Mass. We At least we don't have to listen to Boring Homilies. At least I don't have to listen to Boring Homilies, I preach. But, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, and you know, you see Mass every day, it's very, and it's a ritual, it's a routine, it's very easy to get caught up in this. and you could be a mass and then sometimes I'll like think of a joke or something or a meme I saw and I'll start laughing. Are like, Why are you laughing? I said, well, I was thinking of this meme <laughs> or my, I'll space out and I don't want to. Or sometimes I'll think like I'm doing mass and I have all these things I got to do later on today and I, I need to get this out of the way. So that temptation is very, very real. I mean, I, I should be honest and admit it, but I was talking to someone today in fact and maybe this is like providential to put it it was a point I never thought of before and this was deeply spiritual and she said you know Father I did you realize and I think all should realize that even when you feel you're distracted and you're tired and you're rushing through Mass the Father still delights that you show up for Mass I'm like whoa because it's true. I mean, if Mass is the ultimate prayer, and even though I may feel like all over the place, he's still happy when the priest and the person of the son shows up to say Mass. Jesus is still pleased. The Father, the Spirit is still there. And it's a new perspective I've never thought of before, because often, like, I am the priest offering it for people and for the world, but I am mean, not showing up. And like I said, all the time, the Lord's just happy that you show up in prayer. Here, like, Father, the Lord's... Still, still delights that you show up for Mass, that you get to offer that Mass to be with Him and He's happy that you're there. And I'm like, well, that's that's pretty revolutionary. Yeah that, yeah, that is awesome. So
0: small things that the Lord can be delighted with that we don't see, that we yeah. don't expect. Yeah,
1: and so does it doesn't mean like, oh, the Lord's delighted, it's so only rushing no. up. So, but it should be like, hey, if you are going to spend quality time with someone you love, you don't want to rush it. Like, hey, let me just enjoy this. Because whenever you're like, I'm going to get out of here, you're drive me nuts. That's when we don't get to really lean into the quality time. So we understand that we're not just there doing some duty or obligation, where the Lord delights that the priest is showing up. Or even that in Mass, everybody shows up. That we can savor that time better. Nice. Uh, so just one final question that was asked by
0: someone. what um, is what does a priest do? Can a priest say mass without having to go to confession? Like if they're not in a state of grace, can they say mass? Yeah,
1: yeah. So we believe that the the sacraments work ex opere operato. Out of the work worked. So as a priest, as long as you follow the rules, do what the church Follow the recipe, do what the church tells you to do, and you have the right intention to to, to do what the church wants to do, to bring about baptism, to particularly here, confect the Eucharist. Regardless of your own state of sin, or your your soul, or your being focused or whatever, the grace is still communicated. The sacrament still comes into effect. Now, if you're a priest, you're a mortal sin, you perform something, maybe that brings more sin upon you but it doesn't impact the efficacy of the sacrament as long as you do what you're supposed to be doing. So if I get up there and I'm like in sin and I say, I don't believe in the Eucharist. Well then, it's my intention or if I do the Mass but I change the words, then it's me not following the rubrics that cause, it, that cause the problem. Okay. Cool. But it does not, one could argue that like if you're not in a state of grace the priest doesn't it may impact the grace that comes to the sacrament, but it doesn't. want to argue that. I'm not saying that. I'm But it doesn't change the, the reality of what the sacrament is. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, cool. I appreciate you sitting down and, and podcasting yeah. with me. this that no, awesome. that's, that's awesome. And no, you're a great interviewer.
1: Thanks for that. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Any other questions, or we're just uh, we're all good. Oh. Um, down to do this again sometime. Oh, yeah, sure. That's definitely. Oh, good. Well, thanks a lot, Rita. and we'll uh, so everybody has a good quarantine.
0: Yep.